Hi, I'm Chris Fleming. Welcome to another episode of Health Affairs This Week, the podcast where health affairs editors and guests talk about health policy news and issues. Today, we're joined by Mike Chernu. Mike is the Leonard D. Schaefer Professor of Healthcare Policy and the Director of the Healthcare Markets and Regulation Lab at Harvard Medical School. He has other accolades uh, and uh, accomplishments way too numerous to mention here, but uh, uh, one I will mention is that he chairs MedPAC, the Medicare Payment and Advisory Committee. Uh, but today, I should emphasize that Mike is speaking on his own behalf and not as MedPAC chair. Mike, welcome. Glad to be here, Chris. As many of you will know, uh, Mike, together with Mike McWilliams, uh, wrote a piece uh, that appeared on Health Affairs Forefront on Monday. The title of the post was The Case for ACOs, Why Payment Reform Remains Necessary. Mike, you made the case for payment reform on two grounds, efficiency and equity. Uh, For those of our listeners who haven't read your piece, and I would encourage anyone in that category to read the whole piece, it's very interesting and rewarding. Uh, Can you briefly explain why you think payment reform is necessary to advance those two goals? In the absence of payment reform, we use a fee-for-service payment model in which care uh, is paid for in a very fragmented way. And what that means is that the delivery system doesn't have incentives to avoid the use of low-value care or to arrange care patterns in a way that will save money. To give you an example, uh, the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation has launched a Choosing Wisely initiative, which identifies a number of types of care that um, don't need to be delivered. And in the fee-for-service system, providers lose financially when they avoid those types of care. For example, an unnecessary MRI for a low-risk patient, things like that. And in a payment reform world, the delivery system is given much more control, much more autonomy about how they deliver care, and they're allowed to share in the savings, promoting efficiency. It changes the financial incentives. Given the fiscal challenges that the Medicare program faces, I think a payment model that promotes efficiency is important. It won't guarantee it. It just will do less uh, harm in terms of standing in the way. Uh, We also talk a lot about equity, which is getting a lot of attention now. I think it's very important. Equity is fundamentally a population-based concept. We're concerned about the health of different populations and what they get. The fragmented nature of the fee-for-service system makes it much harder to promote equity because you're thinking about equity on a service-by-service level, not on, say, a population-based level. And so by aligning the nature of payment with the uh, goals that you're trying to achieve, lower care at a population basis, equity at a population basis, um, you can do a better job of promoting both efficiency and equity. Great. Well, I want to delve into uh, some of the specific uh, points that you made, one in particular in your piece. But before we do that, I want to pull back a little. Uh, You're making the the case for payment reform. uh, And this is obviously something that the health policy community has been talking about for a while. Uh, however you want to put it, moving from volume to value, away from fee-for-service to population-based approaches. It feels like we're in a particularly active period in this regard. Uh, you know, CMS and the Center for uh, Medicare and Medicaid Innovation at the agency uh, has released its strategic refresh on its uh, payment reform strategy. Uh, we just got a report, I think, yesterday on the Medicare Shared Savings Program, uh, which seemed to have some some mixed news on the growth of accountable care. From your vantage point as someone 
uh, who's been doing this for a while and who chairs uh, Congress's advisory committee for, on Medicare. I'm just curious if you could give us your sense of where we are on this uh, payment reform journey. I'm always reminded of that you know, famous Churchill quote, we're not at the end. We're not even at the beginning of the end. We we may be at the the end of the beginning. Uh, so I'm sort of wondering, you know, sort of how optimistic you are, what's working, what's not. Uh, give us your sense of where we are. Yeah, I don't want to compete with Churchill for quotes. Um, <laughs> and and I am uh, speaking again as my role as a Harvard professor, not as MedPAC chair. But I will say my view is there's a lot of smoke we don't yet have liftoff, or maybe we have liftoff, but we're still pretty close to the ground. There's a long way to go. Um, what I believe we have demonstrated is that by changing the payment models, we can induce behavior change on the part of the delivery system. I think there is reasonably consistent evidence when you move to population-based payment models or uh, some episode payment models the delivery system will change how they deliver care. They will do so in a way that reduces um, overall use of healthcare services and uh, provides comparable and actually in some cases better quality. There's some evidence, that, for example, there's better patient satisfaction in these models. So I think that part, broadly speaking, has been working. The savings have been modest. So to pick another uh, analogy, maybe you have a bloop single somewhere. Um, we're certainly not, uh, don't have a home run yet. Um, I'm not sure there's a home run to be had. Uh, the fence is maybe too far away. But in any case, I think we can do better in a bunch of ways. We haven't yet developed the models that will make sure that those savings get uh, translated to program savings, although there are some program savings in the shared savings program that you mentioned, but Medicare is saving a modest amount. I should note that in shared savings programs, you would expect the savings to be shared, as the name implies. So uh, not all of the savings accrue to the program. Some accrue to providers. That's why the savings exist. I think the models that we have now are relatively complex and there's a wide array of them. I think we're in the process of transitioning from what I call the thousand flowers blooming strategy, the, the test and diffuse model, to one where I think we're trying to build a more uh, coordinated portfolio of models so the models work together. It's important to understand that we should not have 20 models and expect them all to work seamlessly together because they share the same delivery system. So I think some of those things are moving forward. And there's a lot of nuanced things that we need to work on. Risk adjustment, um, participation incentives, attribution, how the models do actually work together, how we deal with our overlap between episode and ACOs, for example, and a bunch of technical statistical issues we're dealing with. So we are in the improve execution phase of a concept that seems promising and hopefully that will play out well. Uh, I want to sort of uh, pick up on uh, what you just said, uh, and also in the course of that, come back to what you talked about in your piece. You talked about some of the issues that we have to solve uh, to make payment reform work, uh, and I'm hoping that maybe you can talk about sort of three or four of the sort of critical forks we're at. Uh, you know, where what are the the decisions in terms of you know where do we go here or there? that we need to make uh, in terms of payment reform. And, and one of those I'd like you to address uh, would be the split that seems to be within the within people who, the group of people who are advocates of payment reform, where uh, some of the folks uh, seem to be uh, in favor of uh, look, using a wide array of approaches, 
uh, including models like direct contracting and Medicare Advantage uh, that employ uh, for-profit entities, uh, whereas others uh, see see really those models at war with the sort of nonprofit uh, ACO provider-driven approach. Uh, we had a piece, as I'm sure you know, uh, that Don Berwick and, and Rick Gilfillan wrote uh, last year on Health Affairs Forefront that sort of took that approach of opposing uh, at least some flavors of direct contracting and, and expressing skepticism about, about MA. Uh, you talk about that in your uh, in your piece. Uh, so I'm wondering if you could talk here about sort of maybe expand on that divide a little bit uh, and then talk about, you know, how we might bridge it. Uh, that's a that's a, a broad mandate, but uh, I'll let you take it away. Yeah, let me see how well I can do with addressing all of those questions. First, <laughs> let me talk about big picture issues we have to address. So one of the biggest tangibly are issues like how much should we rely on population-based models versus episode type models and how should they be integrated? I think conceptually, I've said in other contexts that what's going on is we're trying to build models that will reduce the amount of waste in the system and we're having a discussion about who owns that waste or who gets the savings when the waste gets removed. In other contexts, I've coined the phrase waste as an asset. So I think that's sort of the bigger picture question about who gets to keep the waste. Um, with regards to the direct contracting MA-ACO debate, first, let me say, I don't view MA in and of itself as a payment reform model. The MA plans can pay fee-for-service. The MA plans can pay population-based models. They can develop a whole range of things. I actually put direct contracting much more closely in the camp of ACOs than I do MA plans. And the reason is there's a core distinction in the economics of Medicare Advantage and the economics of direct contracting slash ACOs. And that is in the Medicare Advantage world, beneficiaries choose the plan and they do so with various inducements in terms of added benefits and a bunch of other things. I am generally speaking positive about Medicare Advantage. I do think we overpay them, but I think as a program, the Medicare Advantage plans have demonstrated that they can deliver Part A and B services for less money than uh, fee-for-service. We just pay them too much. The issue with Medicare Advantage is because the beneficiaries are enrolling, the Medicare Advantage plan controls the beneficiary. That allows them to put conditions on providers that the providers or the beneficiaries, the providers may or may not like because they can come to providers and say, we have this group of beneficiaries. If you want access, you have to do this. In contrast, the ACO models and frankly, the direct contracting models, though a lot of it depends on the details of the model, the beneficiary is aligned through the uh, relationship they have with the provider and the provider has to sign up for to participate in any direct contracting model. And that limits the ability of the direct contracting entity to, in some ways, impose certain requirements on the delivery of care. They can't, for example, kick a provider out of the network in the same way that an MA plan could kick a provider out of the network. They can't impose utilization review at quite the same level of stringency because if the providers don't like the utilization review, the providers, in some ways, don't have to participate in a range of ways. Now, that's a very simplified discussion of a very complicated topic because you have primary care doctors, you have specialists, you have hospitals. So there's a lot to be said there. This debate has largely focused in part on the role of for-profit and non-profit organizations, which I understand. I would just say that in my 
opinion, that distinction is much less stark than some of the debate would make it sound. So there's a lot of research that says for-profit entities behave a lot like nonprofit entities and vice versa in a range of ways. We mentioned in the piece, the case against Sutter Health. I'm not going to make a comment about Sutter Health, but I should just note that Sutter Health is nonprofit. And many of the nonprofit entities in the system rely on for-profit entities to support a lot of what they do. So my view is that this discussion should be less about ownership and more about guardrails. What behaviors do you not want to have happen? So, for example, in the Medicare Advantage debate, there's a lot of concern about risk coding, as you know from your piece with Don and Rick. You can address the risk coding issue without worrying about the ownership issue. You could change the way in which we do risk adjustment, risk adjustment clawbacks, and a whole range of other things without claiming that you need to be nonprofit. And frankly, I'm not so convinced that nonprofit entities would do that much different in terms of risk coding if given all the incentives to do so. So that's my take on that particular debate. I think direct contracting suffers from its name and its history, but I view it more as a type of high-risk, symmetric ACO-style model. And the key is what risk parameters are in place in that model and what guardrails are in place much more so than what type of entities are participating. And we need to make sure that the behaviors we don't want to happen are guarded against and uh, not expect that by contracting with certain types of groups, everything will be good and other types of groups, everything will be bad. I think that's too stark of a distinction. Well, well, great. And this is obviously a topic that we could uh, talk about at great length. Uh, but for today, I think we'll have to wrap it up, uh, leave it there uh, to be continued. Uh, and uh, Mike, I want to thank you uh, very much for joining us. Chris, thank you very much. It's always fun to talk. Likewise on my end. Uh, and uh, I want to uh, thank our listeners, of course, as well. Uh, and I want to remind folks uh, to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, if you like what you heard or even if you didn't. Uh, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>